Please open your Bibles now to the 26th chapter of the book of Acts as we're forging ahead with vigor. We'll soon be arriving at the conclusion of this letter, which is really open-ended. Um, I've often thought about uh, the passages in both Ephesians and Colossians where one of the uh, results of being filled with the Spirit is that we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing or speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I think today that is not just something objective, but is something experienced, as I could hear you singing, that's what I'm saying. And that singing sort of uh, gladdens my heart. I'm a little overwhelmed by it. Not just whelmed, but overwhelmed. So uh, it's just wonderful to hear you sing today uh, out and loud. With that said, hear now the word of the Lord as we read the entirety of the 26th chapter, which is a lot of verses, so please give your attention to the reading of God's word. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that is, it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promises made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me 
and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying uh, these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind, and your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things to and to him I, boldly, I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word. Let us bow and pray that he would prosper his word where he sends it today. Lord, we thank you that your word is a living thing, that you created the world out of nothing by your word, that your word um, finds its way into our hearts. It's planted as a seed uh, it, it accomplishes your purposes uh, and prospers where you send it. And so we pray today that your word would prosper us as we spend this time um, listening and hearing and responding to this, your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul's uh, address to King Agrippa is the grand finale of his defense speeches. Listen to just what's been going on in the last several weeks in the book of Acts. He had addressed the people of Israel in the temple. He had addressed the Jewish leaders who constituted the Sanhedrin council. And uh, the Roman governor Felix. He would present his witness to a king of the Jews. Moreover, the defense to Agrippa is the last major message from Paul's lips in Acts. 
Uh, Luke will briefly summarize Paul's dialogue with the Jewish leaders in Rome. And although Paul calls his message a defense, the venue is not a legal trial, but a hearing to advise the governor to the contents of his report to Caesar. Remember that. The governor was trying to find what he could send to Caesar as far as charges go uh, for Paul's appeal. But because the purpose of the hearing and the climactic placement of this speech in Acts and the apostles' remarks do not focus on the charges of the Sanhedrin leadership, rather they offer a defense of his whole life and ministry, expounding the gospel as he preached as the fulfillment of God's promises declared through Moses and the prophets to satisfy Israel's hope and bring light to the Gentiles. Since such good news demands a response, Paul would press his case trying to persuade King Agrippa to uh, bow before King Jesus. Now, what I want to do today is sort of give you the big picture of this defense and then hone in on a couple of cases in a little more depth. Uh, I avoid the word unpack because it seems like everybody I hear says unpacked and I'm tired of it. So I'm going to tell you what it says. How about that? Uh, the best that I can. Uh, when Paul begins his defense, he's not simply flattering the king with some sort of golden words, but signaling the direction of his case. He assumes certain things about King Agrippa, that the king knew a lot about the Old Testament, that he was acquainted with Jewish customs and controversies. He's going to assume that the king has enough intelligence and intellectual seriousness to listen to a sustained argument which is in question in our culture today. Nobody presents any sustained argument. Have you noticed that? It's all little sound bites. It's all little cliches. It's all little shibboleths. But nobody presents sustained arguments anymore because people don't have the attention span. And why that is, I'll let you decide for yourself. But here Paul presents a sustained argument, a very logical, powerful. He asks for Agrippa to be patient as he works this out. And so Paul has therefore assessed the one who is listening to him, and he adapts his argument to him, and Paul is ready then by giving him such a sincere compliment, he begins his defense in a winsome fashion. Basically, he says to Agrippa, I sense in you the intelligence to listen to a full presentation, so here we go. In verses 4 through 11, Paul opens by showing evidence that he is completely committed to the biblical faith of his fathers. This is no new thing for him. He shows that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. What do you know about the Pharisees? They were a party that developed during the intertestamental period who were devoted to the law of God. They were the strictest of the four parties in the uh, early first century in Judaism. And so the Pharisees were the ones most concerned about the Bible, the ones who were most concerned about the hope of the resurrection. And so Paul begins by identifying, I am one of you. I'm not some strange alien that has fallen out of the sky 
from elsewhere. I'm one of you. Listen carefully. I have my credentials. And therefore, it's worthy to listen. It's, it's a worthy request for you to listen to me. He was committed to the biblical truth. He was committed to the law of God as anyone ever has been. No one ever tried harder than Paul did. Also, like the Pharisees, he was committed to the future hope of the resurrection. So to summarize, I would say it this way. Despite the charges against me, my record shows that no one has studied nor loved the law of God or hoped in the resurrection more than I, and I have not changed. Then in verses 9 through 11, Paul brings out a second fact. His violent persecution of Christians. This is an important argument, uh, and it really makes several points. First, it proves again that he was very committed to the biblical faith. Second, it also shows a, a sense that he understands how people could be opposed to Christianity and see it as a betrayal of the faith. Paul understood that. He got that. He understood why someone like Agrippa or any other Jew of the first century might have misgivings, might have misunderstandings, and might be opposed to the faith because Paul himself as Saul was. Third, he, his record sets up for the next stage of the case since we now know that the evidence for Christ must have been very strong to turn someone around like me Therefore, in summary, what Paul is saying is, indeed, I can understand how my brothers feel. I once saw Christianity this way myself. But the evidence for Christ was so compelling and strong and moving, it changed my mind. Now, Paul's given a testimony here. He's talking about his own experience of the grace of God. And he's sharing this testimony before this august crowd that had gathered. If you want to know about the crowd, look in the previous chapter. It's full of pomp and circumstance and all the glory of Rome. Most of his uh, audience, however, was Gentiles. However, he's speaking, in this case, more particularly to King Agrippa. Then in verses 12 through 16, the first two lines of evidence that Paul uses is the reality of the resurrected Christ. Paul recounts his meeting with Christ on the Damascus Road. He tells it a little bit differently here. We'll comment on that in a moment. But first, Paul recounts his meeting saying this was not a hallucination, nor just a personal vision that is seen by the fact that everybody with me fell to the ground. When the blazing light of Jesus, brighter than the sunshine, I was driving west, coming from the east here in town around sunset when the sun is right above the mountains. And I have to tell you, I must have gone a half mile and I couldn't see anything. Now, that's not very encouraging, is it? If you see me out driving in a car in the sunshine like that, get away from me. I cannot see you. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. This was overpowering, so overpowering that it knocked us off our feet. We fell to the ground. And so, the um, important fact was that 
his companions also fell to the ground. They didn't hear what was said. Only Paul heard what was said. And in this version of his experience, he stresses that he was sent out, commissioned as it were, to be a witness to Christ, the Christ he had met. So in summary, what Paul says here in verses 12 through 16, when I was confronted with the reality of the resurrected Christ, it changed the whole direction of my life. I know he's alive. I saw him and he talked to me. That's what he's saying. And then in verses 17 to 21, Paul gives Agrippa the explanation for the hostility of the Jewish leaders. It is not because Paul is being untrue to the biblical faith and the hope of Israel, that is the resurrection of the dead, but because proclaiming that through Christ the Gentiles can share and be included in the biblical faith of the hope of Israel. In summary, he's saying, I am accused not because I'm unfaithful to our God, but because I teach that through Christ, the Gentiles can also know our God. In other words, Paul understood what it was like to be a Jew and to absolutely detest and loathe and hate Gentiles. And he knew the moment he said this, the door was beginning to close. Because he struck the nerve. He struck the nerve when he mentioned that Gentiles now can have equal status before the God of Israel. And then in verses 22 to 23, the second of the two lines of evidence that Paul uses is the testimony of the Scriptures. He argues that the Bible pointed to and looked to Jesus Christ everything about him was predicted, namely, that through his work, his death, and his resurrection, he would bring salvation, that is, light, both to Jew and Gentile. Notice his careful acknowledgement of a daring truth that the Jews also need salvation. And so does Mary, his mother. <laughs> Some people seem to think that Mary is... A perpetual virgin who had no sin nature. That's not true. Mary needed her son's salvation as much as any of us do. But when he said that, that they need salvation as much as the Gentiles, here, though he's treading very lightly, Paul shows the real reason he's being persecuted. Not only is it that through Christ the Gentiles can know the God of Israel, but only through Christ can the Jews be right with their own God. So Paul is proclaiming the God of Israel through the scriptures of Israel and pointing to the hope of Israel, the resurrection and to eternal life with God. He is putting Jew and Gentile on equal spiritual footing. If you don't believe that, read Romans chapter 1 through 3. They equally, equally are in need of Christ and his light. And they can equally receive it. So in summary in this section, And when I looked at the scripture, I found that it predicted this same Christ, through whom both Jew and Gentile can have the light and salvation of God. And so how, just for a brief moment, how does Paul's testimony give us pointers for our own? First, Paul shared his testimony three times in the book of Acts. 
This is the third time. Paul adapts his testimony every time to the people who are listening to him. He has different nuances. He emphasizes certain points, leaves out certain points. In this one, he doesn't even mention Ananias at all. Third, Paul always concentrates as much on the personal life change as the account of the experience itself. In each case, there's a great stress on his fanatical and angry before condition contrast with the new after condition. They are described in great detail in the same way when we give our testimonies, as Guy just did when he uh, did our gospel moment, it's important to talk about the actual difference Christ makes for us. It's easy to focus on the details of how you found Christ, or rather, Christ found you. Too much emphasis on that may give people the false impression that their own process must be just like yours. It doesn't need to be. But there are some differences here when Paul shares his testimony in this account. The major difference, and I want you to pay attention to it, is in verse 14. Jesus said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is an agricultural illusion, a goad being a sharp stick used to herd goats and other animals. Why would Paul bring this out here when he's talking to Agrippa in this context? This suggests that there already was in the depths of Paul's mind a half-conscious conviction that the Christian case was true. Remember where he was when Stephen was stoned and Stephen preached that glorious message before he was stoned and Paul was standing there uh, with his cloak watching the whole process. You know, you may be sharing scripture with people. You may be sharing your testimony with unbelievers. You may be talking and praying for unbelievers and you don't get any visceral response at all. Rather, they just seem unmoved, unmotivated. You don't know what's going on. You do not know. The Word of God's a powerful thing. We know that. But you don't know, and I don't know what's going on. Stephen's arguments were perhaps more cogent than Paul allowed himself to admit. It was probably in large measure to stifle this conviction. He was kicking against the goads. And that is why Paul threw himself so furiously in his campaign of persecuting and repressing Christians. Which tells you this, often people get worse before they get better. You need to learn this. When you're sharing the gospel with people, you, like me, hope it'll be a Damascus Road experience for them. They will be like the Ethiopian eunuch who you meet in the desert saying, what must I do to be saved? You know, low-hanging low fruit that just falls off the tree. But Paul here is describing a, a, a reality, an experience that was longer in the making than just the road to Damascus. The goad kept pricking his conscience until at last the truth that Jesus was risen indeed burst forth into his full realization. Some of you are worried about your children. Some of you are praying for your children. You reared them up the best you could in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And maybe now it seems like they're walking the other way. You don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. But I do know this. It's hard for them to kick against the goad. Why? Because if an animal kicked back against the goad, what happens? The sharp end goes into its foot. 
I don't know if you've ever had anything sharp stab you in the back of the foot, but it ain't fun. It feels bad. And so, this statement from Jesus indicates that Paul's conversion was not quite as sudden as it might appear. There was a longer process of wrestling with the evidence. Paul himself had these same two kinds of evidence that he gives Agrippa even before the Damascus Road experience. And since there were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the risen Christ in Jerusalem, and he had heard the reasoning of Stephen from the Bible, Paul is probably bringing this out. Because he's trying to bring Agrippa to Christ. He is beautifully showing that a very educated and sophisticated Jew can be converted by the evidence for Christ. Even if it means wrestling deeply and even semi-consciously with it. Surely Paul is saying to Agrippa, I know you might not be able at first to admit some attraction toward Christ. I could not either, Paul would say. But ponder these things. If you're moved or convicted secretly, just know it is God who is after you, just like he was after me, the hound of heaven. He will find you. It's an extremely personal and bold appeal to Agrippa's heart. The appeal becomes more overt in verse 27. And so, Paul begins to give Agrippa a sort of comprehensive view of the gospel of Christ. We really see Paul as an evangelist at work here in these final verses, especially though the ostensible purpose of the address was to clear himself legally. His purpose, that is Paul's, was to convert his listeners and especially Agrippa. The audience saw Paul as the man in chains, but Paul spoke as the freest man who's ever lived. As if uh, his audience were the ones who were really in chains. He wants them to be as he is. Therefore, we see him providing some very clear and compelling summary statements of the gospel. First of all, he mentions the need for salvation that both Jew and Gentile has. The need for salvation. You know, people are not neutral. We're not born neutral toward God. We're born fallen because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. All of us are born in a state of sin, uh, of rebellion against God, a hardness toward God, even a hostility toward God, though we're too nice of people to show it. But we have it. It's there. And it can be nasty, too. It can be really nasty. But Paul begins to describe the first half of the verse that is... Uh, verse 18, tells us what God does for us and what condition we are in. He opens their eyes. He breaks the power of Satan over us. In other words, he's telling us two things. Our pre-conversion status is we're blind to spiritual reality. We're blind to spiritual We cannot see it in and of ourselves until someone turns the lights on. And we're under the power of the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. There is a spiritual being. The Bible calls him Satan, probably Lucifer, who fell from heaven, took one-third of the angels with him in rebellion against heaven. And he is the prince of this world. 
And he lies. He lies. He has a campaign of lies. He's the father of all lies, Jesus tells us. And he lies to us constantly about who we are and who God is and who Jesus is. And we're gullible enough and fallen enough to believe those lies. And it takes a great deal of power to open our eyes and to show us the hostility and uh, devilishness, I guess is the best word I can say, of the devil. He is truly uh, an accuser. In other words, we are spiritually blind and spiritually enslaved, though we don't know it. Our spiritual inability is such that God must be the one to turn us to the light. Then Paul talks about the method of salvation. Uh, the second half of the verse explains what we are to do. We are to receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. Becoming a Christian, first and foremost, is receiving forgiveness. You receive it. You don't merit it. You don't earn it. You don't atone for it. It is something that is free. It is given because Christ paid the price for it. Christ took our punishment for our sins, and now God sends them away as we receive it. But we also get a place among those who are sanctified. We do not merely receive forgiveness, which is sort of a, a negative, a pardon for our failures, but we also receive a place, a reward, which is also received and never earned. This is a place for those sanctified by faith in me, that is, faith in Christ. It is common for us to think of sanctification as only a process of becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ and being more and more delivered from sin. But the word sanctified here is used in a different way. It's used to describe something set apart as holy. It's talking about not progressive sanctification we experience now, but definitive sanctification that's already occurred because of Christ. We see what a tremendous offer this is. The word receive does not only refer to forgiveness, but to the place. So when we believe in Christ, we receive, then and there, both a pardon and a standing with God as He treats us holy and sanctified. God sees the finished product. And that's why we are beautiful to Him. That's why He can speak of us as the apple of His eye. That's why He can rejoice over us with singing. Because we have a place. We have been put in place. We have a place to stand. And we will forever. And what makes me beautiful to God is not my efforts, as paltry as they are. Have you ever really tried to be godly and holy? Have you ever really tried it? It's the most frustrating thing in the whole world. Because if I fail, I feel despicable. If I succeed, I feel really proud. Don't look at me like you don't do that. I know you do that. I thought start thinking I'm better than others. And there's nothing quite as, quite as exhilarating sometimes as feeling better than others. 
But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is exalting Christ in your life and realizing that part of growing in grace is seeing your, your cavernous, infinite, awesome need for Jesus. You know, I read Martin Luther a good bit because I think the man got it. I think he understood the gospel. But nobody tried as hard as Martin Luther and the Apostle Paul to be godly. And once they saw there was no way without either fear or pride coming in the equation, they began to focus on Jesus and rejoice in what he's done. And our response to it is always receive it. You can't live up to it. You can't achieve it. Receive it. That's the gospel. But we must also understand that this place in which we stand is not just individualistic. It's also a place among. We are part of a community, a family. When we get God as our Father, we immediately and automatically get a new set of brothers and sisters. John Stott said, For the new life in Christ and the new community of Christ always go together. What was specifically significant was that the Gentiles were to be granted a full and equal share with the Jews in the privileges of those sanctified by faith in Christ, that is, the holy people of God. Now you're looking at St. Timothy. That's who I am. Not because I've done some miraculous deeds and been canonized by the church, but rather I am St. Timothy because I am vitally united to Christ. And he sees me as one set apart and holy. See, God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the Alpha and the Omega, the A to Z. And in God's economy, it's done. I am beautiful. He's not disgusted with me. It's not like, you know, Tim, I've been working on you for a good 45 years. And let's face it, you ain't getting anywhere. You, you are making me sick. I'm disgusted with you. You are a stench in my nostrils. No. That's not how God sees me because I'm united to Christ and He sees me through the lenses of Jesus. And He gives me Christ's perfect record. That's the most liberating thing in the whole world. Paul's standing in front of these people in chains and he's the only free person in the whole room. If you weren't Presbyterian, you'd be saying hallelujah. The ground of salvation. But it's a good thing to be a Presbyterian most of the time. Without verse 23, it would be hard to see what faith in Christ is. In verse 23, he makes it clear that it is not faith in Christ as a teacher or faith in Christ as an example, though he was a peerless teacher and though he was a perfect example. Rather, it is through what he did, his death and resurrection, that secure for us forgiveness and our place. So we do not become Christians by just living for Christ in some general way, but by transferring our trust and faith from our efforts and work to Christ, efforts and work. What Paul is saying is when we believe in Christ, we receive complete pardon and we are accepted by the Father as holy and blameless in Christ. Blameless. 
You couldn't ever point at one thing in Jesus and convince him of sin. He said it and nobody ever pointed out any defect in sin. And I have his blamelessness as much as if I lived it myself. You say, Pastor, you're out of your mind. That's what Festus said to Paul. You've lost your mind. No, by God's grace, my mind's beginning to be transformed to see what the real truth is. Now you need to listen faster so we can get through. The ground of salvation we have said. Now how does Paul summarize his two lines of argument in a final stunning direct appeal to King Agrippa? Paul's final appeal is remarkable both for its boldness and its brilliance. It was bold because it was so direct. Paul's not beating around the bush here. He's not trying to uh, set anybody up. He presses the historical line of evidence here. It was dangerous, but it was brilliant. But he presses the line of uh, uh, evidence and argument. He counters Festus's outburst that his message is not wishful thinking or fantasizing or a loss of his mind. It is the most true and reasonable thing there is and the only hope we have. Rather, he insists that it's rational to be a Christian. Paul doesn't say, I know this is true because I feel it so strongly. I remember when Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, y'all probably don't even know who this is, but they had a television show. And Tammy Faye one time was asked by somebody how she knew she was a Christian. She said this, I know because I know because I know, because I know, because I know. What'd she say? Nothing. That's what she said. And Paul is saying, that's not what I'm saying. It's not some sort of existential hiccup here. It's, it's that there's clear, compelling arguments here. It's not because I feel it so strongly. Rather, he insists the most rational thing in the world to be is a Christian if you understand what we're saying. Then he makes a vivid statement. The king knows these things. For this was not done in a corner. Paul had such confidence that the miracles and ministry and the death of Christ and the reports by eyewitnesses of the resurrection, none of this could have escaped King Agrippa's knowledge. He knew. And that's very, very important to notice. It's now 25 years after the death of Jesus, and yet Paul is able at such a crucial moment to assume that anyone who had lived in or around Jerusalem would have well known about these matters. He can say without fear of contradiction, the king knows about this man. Jesus, the miracles he did, how his tomb is empty, and how many people have claimed to see him risen, you know this is true. Amazing. These facts were so well known that even unbelievers and enemies couldn't deny them, though they tried. So, though Paul knew the entire story would seem ridiculous to a Gentile pagan like Festus, he knew that Agrippa could be challenged and would not be able to deny the basic features of the life of Jesus. That's why he makes such a bold move here. And Agrippa's response shows that he could not deny what Paul had said. 
But he also returns to the predictions of the prophets in the scriptures. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. So Paul has boxed the king in a corner. And his response has been variously interpreted. Some see him as joking, being sarcastic, said with a laugh. Some see it as an outburst of anger. And some see it as a statement that he is sincerely interested, though Paul is going too fast for him. Which is it? It's hard to know. Maybe it's all three, and I somewhat suspect it is. No matter what his emotion or motivation, however, his statement does not answer Paul's challenge or question. Paul clearly has King Agrippa at a spot where he had to simply change the subject. I remember sharing the gospel with a person one time. And I felt like the presence of God was strong and I was going through it with them and I felt like they were tracking with me. And when it got right to the time for me to talk about praying and receiving Christ, a knock at the door came and in came two or three of this person's friends and it was over. And, and I just struggle with that. But here Paul senses that God is at work. His final statement is a lesson in communication. Whether Agrippa's statement was a sarcastic joke, an outburst, or a request, Paul responds to it as if it were positive. He basically says, I don't care how long you take, I only want you to know him as I do. So in conclusion, Luke shows that Paul is not guilty and that Christianity is not disruptive to the public order and society. But why do you think Luke is pressing this? Luke keeps showing that Paul is repeatedly found not guilty of undermining the peace by one magistrate after another. He also shows Paul relying on Roman justice and finding it fair and upright. Why was Luke so keen to demonstrate this? In the early centuries of its life, the enemies of the faith asserted Christians could not be faithful to Caesar, and therefore the spread of Christianity was bad for society. Why would anyone say that? Weren't there many religions in the empire? Yes, there were. But Christianity challenged the fundamental premise of our pagan world, which was religious pluralism. Plurality is fine. Pluralism is not. Pluralism, speaking of religion, is saying all religions are equally valid. All religions are equally true. It doesn't matter what you believe. The pagans believed that there were many gods, they were polytheists, that every group and nationality and region had, uh, and had its own god, and no one claimed that they had the supreme god over every nation or area of life. Rather, everyone had their own religion, their own God, which was extended over a limited turf. The reason that was important in the Roman world was that it, this opened the way for the emperor and other royal persons to be worshipped as gods themselves. Thus, institutionalized polytheism allowed human rulers to take enormous power and to make divine claims. In a polytheistic culture in which no one god is supreme, citizens were used to worshiping a small number of gods, and they could also worship Caesar. Also, each city had a patron deity which gave the rulers of that city power and clout. 
But Christianity threatened this entire system. Even the Jews who believed in the one supreme God still wrongly understood him as belonging only to them. Thus, Judaism ironically fit into the pagan schema, at least as it appeared to the pagans from the outside. To the Romans, Yahweh was just the God of the Jews. But the gospel of Christ was unique because it not only proclaimed one supreme God, but one whose authority extended over every area of life and every nation of the world. Dennis Johnson says it this way, the message of Christ inevitably posed a threat to the institutionalized religious pluralism of the Hellenistic Roman world. When the apostles proclaimed a message from the living God who alone created heaven and earth and all that fills them, they challenged not merely marble images in a city's temple, but the very concept of divine patrons governing different region or spheres of life. Such a message could be seen as dangerous, insulting to civic dig dignity, and disruptive of the fabric of the social order. What Luke had to show the world was the gospel did make people great neighbors and citizens and that the spread of Christianity was healthy for society. From the outside, Christianity almost has to look like arrogance. We hear that a lot. Because people outside of Christianity, by definition, cannot understand that salvation is by grace. Thus, they assume that anyone who thinks they are right with the one and only God will necessarily feel very morally superior and will not serve their neighbors and honor and respect their rulers who are not Christians. However, from the inside, the gospel humbles us deeply and sends us out with radical love for our neighbor. Since salvation is by grace, we expect non, many non-Christians to be wiser and more talented and healthier in many respects than we are. And since salvation is by grace, we want to serve others graciously as we were served. How then can we possibly convince a world that the spread of the gospel makes the world a better place? Only by our example. That is exactly what Luke is doing. He shows the Roman world that Paul humbly respects and trusts Roman justice even when declaring categorically that Jesus is the supreme Lord over every square inch of reality. What is impossible for the world to see is that the absolute lordship is what makes us not hostile, but to be filled with concern for our neighbor, our world, and ready to express that concern through deeds of mercy and justice. That's the greatest apologetic we as a church can offer. That's the greatest apologetic. People hate the exclusivity of Christianity and the way some Christians present it, I would hate it too. But once you understand that salvation is by grace, it just changes everything, everything about how you live in this world. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to sit and listen to the Apostle Paul defend our faith 
in such a masterful, bold, and brilliant way. We pray that you would work in us the same holy boldness and yet deep humility. And we pray that, w that you would do that through all the various means we have, means of grace that you have given to your church. Now, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and mercy which pursues us every single day. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.